Hey, uh, thanks Rachel and kids. You made my job easy. You guys won't remember anything I say. So, <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody else like cries when kids are up here singing, but I do. Um, it was awesome. Thanks. Uh, also, I'm usually more used to speaking at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, not 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. So if I seem a little groggy or sleepy, that's why. And I, there's a couple of our students over there, Kylie and Jenna. I don't know if there's any other students here this morning, but I would feel a lot more comfortable if like two-thirds of you pulled out your phones and just spent the next 20 minutes on Snapchat. Um, that would also really help me feel a lot more comfortable. So. Um, Hey, uh, a few years ago, many years ago now, um, I got to spend the summer in Daytona Beach, Florida. And it was on a cruise summer mission, summer project, leadership development kind of uh, trip. We were there for 10 weeks, and about uh, every, every afternoon around 4 o'clock when we get off work, uh, we would go down to the ocean. We'd play on the beach, we'd go body surfing. And the Atlantic isn't known for thunderous surf or anything like that, unless there's a tropical storm or something like that. And sure enough, about a week before we got home, a tropical storm rolled in. And that meant just huge waves. I mean, chaotic wave patterns, not just like one after another, but this way and that way. It also meant that there was nobody on the beach uh, except for the local Floridians who had their wetsuits and their surfboards. This was it, this was their opportunity. And us, because we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know any better. And so we were out there and it was really fun, really fun for a while. And then I remember vividly getting caught unexpectedly by a huge wave, getting flipped upside down, dragged along the bottom of the ocean, and realizing I don't even know where the surface is anymore. And so I'm fighting to get to the top, running out of air, finally get there, break the surface, draw on a breath, just in time to get smashed by another wave. And I think, I think life can feel like that sometimes. I'm talking about seeing God and suffering and trials this morning. And I know Christmas is a week away and everything's supposed to be merry and bright and, and we need to celebrate that kind of stuff. Um, but I know for a lot of us right now, not everything is merry and bright. And if I can be candid for a moment, our lives for the past few years have been that chaos, trying to fight to the surface, just barely surviving. Um, about three and a half years ago when we moved to Colorado, um, about a month later we found out that my wife's uh, mother, my mother-in-law, had uh, a rare and aggressive form of kidney cancer. Um, she passed away about a year later, um, our second year, our second fall on campus. Um, a few months after that, Julie had a miscarriage. Um, and then uh, this past uh, Thanksgiving, this past November, um, her father passed away uh, from, from suicide, actually. And so uh, that, the stress of all that precipitated the birth of our third child about three weeks early. Um, and then, so we didn't spent a year dealing with just newborn life and things like that and dealing with the estate and all that. And um, Julie was experiencing some health problems and we were thinking that this would all just go away uh, when the stress had passed. And so this semester, the, most of the stress was over. Um, her health wasn't improving, so we started looking into it a little more. Found out just a few weeks ago that she actually was diagnosed with Lyme disease, um, which is pretty rare in this part of the country, but not for her group in the Midwest, um, vacation in Wisconsin every summer. And so I'm sure there's many of you that can relate to that kind of stuff. Um, just one thing after the other, after the other. It can be little things, it can be massive things, but those things have a tendency to leave us feeling just overwhelmed, just in chaos, frantically, just trying to get through the day, fighting to survive. And I, before we experienced all this stuff, I think I pictured myself kind of like charging through trials like this. You know, with a little halo over my head, quoting like whole passages of scripture to other people that were suffering too. 
And I, to be honest, like most of my prayers in the past few years are, are angry and confused rants against God. Why is he doing this? What, who is he? I thought I knew you. Things like that. And so, as wise people say, who have experienced a lot more life even than we have, you're either coming out of a season of trial, you are in a season of trial, or you're about to go into a season of trial. And so how do we walk through these sufferings and these trials with steadfast faith? And when it's much, much more natural for us to default to unbelief and chaos and fighting to just provide for ourselves. And so I had the opportunity to spend some time this summer um, in Daniel chapter 6. If you want to open up your Bibles, you can go ahead and do that. Um, on the Bibles that are the, at the end of your rows, it's page uh, 1,388. Um, if you have a phone, Daniel starts with D. <laughs> I hope you can find it. Um, but uh, I had an opportunity to spend some time um, on this passage, and uh, I was preparing a talk for a class. And I prepared the talk this summer, um, but the class is now, I think, if, if you understand what I mean. It's one thing to, to intellectually prepare something, and it's another thing to live it and to believe it when honestly it feels like God has not answered any of your major prayers for the past three years. And so I think as, as the topic is more I've seen God in, um, there's, there's been moments over these past few years where I don't see God at all. Um, and so I think the way that I'm gonna talk about this more this morning is I see the God of the Bible through my sufferings. And this passage I think is one place where we can see the God of the Bible. So Daniel chapter uh, uh, six, let me grab a drink of water. So um, to set this up just a little bit, if you're not familiar with Daniel, he was a prophet. means he was God's mouthpiece to God's people. God's people were the Israelites. The Israelites had been exiled as they are conquered and taken out of their land 60 years before what we're about to read. And so Daniel was a high government official. Um, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. Daniel's job was preserved, and he had 120 government officials reporting to him. Um, he, was, he reported only to the king, and there was only three guys like him in the whole kingdom. And so this is a man of intense and extreme power, and he did his job really, really, really well. So well that everybody else that he worked with hated him. And, and they started to figure out ways that they could get rid of him because he was so good at his job. He was an obstacle to what they wanted to do for themselves. So they hatch a plan to convince the king to, to pass a law where if anybody prays to anybody but the king for 30 days, they are killed, they're executed. And that might sound weird to us, pretty normal at this time to associate kingship and divinity. And so we're gonna pick up the story in verse 10. Um, and about the time that Daniel hears of the news of this law, okay? So Daniel chapter six, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the, de the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. 
Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And so I just want to take a minute and point out something that really stands out to me. And that is Daniel's immediate response to this news that he receives, that he could die if he continues to pray. And his response is simply just to keep praying. And it's, it's not that he starts to pray. It says that he, he has been doing this for a long time. And so he just continues to do the same thing, pray, that he has been doing this whole time. And I love that his gut level, instinctual, preferred response is to go to the Lord and pray. How many other things could he have done? How many other things do I try to do before I pray? I mean, he was, he was the king's right-hand man. He could have simply just gone to the king and said, hey, look, this is what's going on. I mean, he could have just ran away. He could have just fled, fled his job, left where he was at. He could have just closed the windows and kept praying. I think in my mind, I would be like, well, God would probably understand. But he doesn't do any of those things. He prefers to pray. His instinct is to pray. And so he just continues to do what he has been doing. And he gets caught and he gets in trouble. And now he's going to find out what's going to happen to him. Let's keep reading in verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no degree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Something that's interesting to me about this passage, too, a passage that if you grew up in Sunday school or in church, you would know as Daniel in the lion's den. What's really interesting to me is that Daniel is actually only given six verses in this whole chapter. Six verses of things that he says or does. Contrast that to King Darius, the other main character. He's given 13 verses, twice as much as Daniel. Almost, the whole, almost half of the whole chapter is devoted specifically to things that Darius says or things that Darius does. And so in some ways, we could probably refer to this better as Darius in the lion's den rather than Daniel in the lion's den. But why is that? What is it that the author, the narrator here, has for us to see about Darius? Remember, Darius is one of the most powerful people in the ancient world. His power is unrivaled. He could pretty much do anything he wants to do. But how do, how does, how do we see Darius in this passage? Okay, verse 14. He starts exercising every possible means he has through the whole day to try to rescue Daniel, and he can't do it. The most powerful man in the ancient world, powerless in this situation. Uh, verse, uh, let's see, 18. So 18, he, he finally, he's forced to do the, the decree, and he goes home, and he is just a nervous wreck. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he doesn't want to have any entertainment brought before him. He is frantic and scared. He has no idea what to do. The most powerful man in the ancient world. I think a lot of times I have a lot of control over my life. And when I lose that, I get angry and anxious and frantic and afraid. Much like this man. And 
Because, because a lot of us are really familiar with this story, um, maybe you aren't. If you aren't, that's great. Um, because we lose some things. Let's just think about this for a second. You're Daniel. You're, you're bound up. I don't think anybody went into it. We'll call it a pit because I don't know what a den really is anyway. Um, so we'll t- he's, he's tied up. He's being lowered into this pit with lions. I don't, people don't go quietly into a lion's pit. right? Every time the, the stone slides open, the lions know they're getting fed. So as soon as that, that stone slides open, the lions start to pace and roar. And so he's being lowered down slowly into this place where only pain and chaos and death come from. It's like horror movie stuff. You know, and he hits the bottom, and for some reason he's not dead yet, but then the stone slides over the top, and now he's in the pitch dark. He can hear the lions breathing. He can smell whatever it smells like to be down there. And I, don't, I think this is really important. Daniel was not given any sort of indication that he was going to be saved. None at all. None at all. And so he's sitting there and he's wondering, is God going to lead me out of this or not? So let's, let's keep reading in the story. Okay, verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continue, who you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And we'll pause there for one more second as the king's cry echoes through the morning air. And his entourage is kind of hanging back a little bit, wondering, like, how are we going to counsel this guy? He's obviously dead. Like, what's wrong with our king? But then the cry comes out of the pit against all logic. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Because he had trusted in his God. The author, I think, pivots the whole story around that end of verse 23 because he had trusted in his God. Daniel knew who his God was. He received the news. He prayed. He continued to walk steadfastly in faith. He trusted his God into the pit, and that is where God met him and sent an angel to be with him to shut the lion's mouths and to save him. And then in a shocking reversal, verse 24, the king throws all of Daniel's enemies into the pit, and they're devoured, it says, before they even hit the bottom. And I think the point is that these aren't, the lions aren't defective. They work. <laughs> it's, this, this is a genuine miracle. There wasn't some accidental thing that happened here. This is legit. And then the end of the story is so, so important. And I'm going to start reading again verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
The end of this story is so important because it points out that this story is not Daniel in the lion's den. It's not Darius in the lion's den, but it's God in the lion's den. And I think at the heart of all the questions that we have about our own trials, the own hard things that we experience in our own life, at the root of all that, at the root of the Israelites who've been out of their country for 60 years, enslaved to this other people, they're wondering, has God forgotten me? Is he still there? Does he hear what I have to say? Even if he does, is he still in control? Can he do anything about this? We want to know, is God sovereign? Is he in control? And we want to know, is God good? Does he love us? And for the sovereign part, that's why this story exists. Because you see at the end of this chapter, one of the, the pagan kings, the most powerful men in the ancient world, proclaiming this. Imagine being an Israelite in the marketplace when the, t- the king's crier, messenger, comes out and opens up his thing and starts to read this out. Living God, enduring forever, kingdom not being destroyed, dominion forever, delivers, rescues, performs signs, performs wonders. That is your God. That is our God. That sounds a lot like the guy who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. That sounds a lot like the God who has provided for us every step of the way up until now. And will continue to do so. All the stories in here are written so that we know who God is, that we can see him through our trials and suffering. And he calls us to remember and believe. So we see God's power and his sovereignty. He is able to rescue. But is he good? Because if he's just powerful and he's not good, that still can be utterly terrifying. That cannot be assuring to me. But we have the added benefit of Dan- that Daniel did not have. Daniel was looking forward. We are looking backward on Jesus' death and resurrection. Romans 5, 8 Paul says, uh, God has demonstrated his love for us that Jesus died while we were still sinners. So we can look back and know that Jesus loved us enough to die. That is the point in the line in the sand. A little bit further in Romans 8, if you're experiencing some trials right now, spend some time in Romans 8 this week. Towards the end of that chapter, Paul talks about how if God was willing to trade his own son's life for us, his love for us is so great that any other thing, it means nothing. Any other thing that we need, any other thing that we feel like we need from God is, is so incomparably small that we can know for sure that God loves us enough to care for us through that. So we look back on Jesus' death and resurrection and know that he was there for us, and we can see that we have a God who suffered. We have a God who suffered with us. I think often about my prayers, God, why are you saying no? I'm in pretty good company. Because Jesus got a no answer as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Please let me avoid this. And God said no. And so I know as I'm getting no answers and I'm continuing to walk through stuff, not only does Jesus know exactly how I'm feeling, but he's with me right there every step of the way. Yes, he is good. Yes, he loves us. And maybe this morning, some of us need to just surrender to that rather than trying to fight our way to the surface again. If there's any action points that I think that we can take from this passage, it's looking at Daniel's life. I mean, because God is good and he's loving and he's sovereign, we do not have to face things like Darius. 
We don't have to be frantic and busy and trying to save ourselves. We can be like Daniel. Daniel preferred to pray because he knew that God loved him and God heard his prayers and God cared for him. That's where he wanted to be in the midst of suffering. Daniel immediately prayed because he knew that God was the one who was able to change things. God is the one who was powerful over all this. And I think it's really important to see that this was Daniel's habit of just meeting God. Daniel knew God. And I think the emphasis is on the knowing over the habit, but the habit really helps when stuff hits the fan. If you're in that habit of meeting with God and knowing who he is, that will incredibly help you continue to walk through I heard somebody recently say that they needed to force force feed themselves the scriptures as they walked through trials. It wasn't what they wanted to do. They needed to force feed themselves truth. Let's go back to the waves um, that I was talking about at the very beginning. Um, But this time, let's think about lighthouses. I love lighthouses. There's not that many in Colorado, is there? Uh, we did live in Michigan for a while. And there's tons there, tons there. Um, but I love, I love lighthouses. I mean, that there's something so beautiful uh, about this stoic structure, just withstanding all forms of, of storms and everything. And I, I think I want to be that. I want to be a lighthouse. But there's one picture that I remember vividly. I don't remember where I saw it. Maybe you've seen it. I, I feel like it's probably well known. But so there's this this beautiful lighthouse standing up tall. And um, on the, the walkway around the lighthouse is the, the man who, who is taking care of the lighthouse. But then crashing over the lighthouse while the man is outside, the, the photo snapped as the wave is like bending around the lighthouse. And so the man's there and the, the wave is breaking around the lighthouse. And I just think that has to be me in these times of trials and suffering. I hear the roar of the waves and the mist is spraying me in the face and, and the foundations of the world are shaking. But, but the wave is crashing on Jesus, the lighthouse. Amen. And as long as I stay right there, as long as I stay right there, I can, I can turn around and I can beat on that lighthouse with my fists and, and rage against him for what he's doing in my life. But he doesn't move. He doesn't go anywhere. And as long as I stay there, the waves will continue to crash. That's the God I see in trials and suffering. Let me pray. God, we thank you for who you are. And we lift our eyes and we see you as you are. God who loves us, the God who's in control. Lord, walk with us. Whether we're in it now, or we were, or we're going to be. Thank you that you will. In your name we pray. Amen.